welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I have Beth with me again, but what's really funny is my recording past partner a couple of months ago is now the person we're recording with which I find incredibly hilariously funny. But Beth is now going to tell you who we've got on today. Beth, who have we got on? Uh, well, we've got no one else other than the history hack Jesus. Josh Proven is here with us today. He is a prolific writer and he certainly is. The content he puts out, the level is absolutely amazing. He's a podcaster and presenter who is here to talk about his new book, Every Hazard and Fatigue, The Siege of Pensacola, 1781. Josh, welcome back to History Hack, we should say. Thank you. It's it's almost as if I never left. It's, it's, know, it's right? so comfortable. Is it weird being on the other side of the microphone of being interviewed when usually you interview with us? It, it has sort of flip-flopped, hasn't it? Because I used to come on just as a guest and then I started doing presenting gigs and now I'm back as a guest. So... I don't know where I am right now. I don't know. I don't know what side's the better side because on my side you can be a little bit more critical, and on your side you actually have to be knowledgeable. So I don't know which has the easier job right now. I never know. I never know myself. Sometimes I prefer being a guest because you just there to talk about your subject, and sometimes it's it's easier to be the presenter where you just let the guest talk, uh, but you have to be able to guide them. So it's it's. it's I I don't know which one I I like best at the second. Do you think Bethy and I can guide you today? Oh, of course. I, I would I would trust no other people I know from history hack to do such a, to, to guide me through. <laughs> uh, Josh knows which side his bread's buttered. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and it's <laughs> and it's whoever has just handed me the bread. <laughs> oh, do you know what? I'm gonna make Beth start this off because because I can. So I'm gonna make Beth go first. Beth, you go first. Yeah, so the uh, the Battle of Pensacola has been talked about on a podcast earlier this year, but can you just, for our viewers, or the viewers, listeners, I mean, for the listeners who maybe didn't listen to that episode or who are new to the podcast, can you give us an overview of Spain's involvement in the War of Independence? Yeah, for all of you guys who missed it or just got bored and left the bad episode, we can do that. Um, so, uh, Spain's involvement in the American War of Independence is a kind of, um, uh, like, third-party role, in a way, because they're allied to the French, not the United States. And their goals, at least to begin with, are very much about restoring um, Spanish possessions that had been lost in the Seven Years' War to the British. And so... Spanish goals in the in the war to begin with were not terribly coalition minded. Uh, they were all about regaining the Gulf of Mexico. They were all about regaining um, the the well, Gibraltar was a big one, and 
Jamaica and expelling all those pesky British traders who had set up shop in the Spanish Empire that they didn't like. And then they were going to get on to actively aiding the French with their money and their ships. Uh, as for the United States, uh, orders were issued to uh, colonial governors, especially those in Cuba and Louisiana, that they were to aid them in, in just basically out of hospitality. If they came, they were they were officially neutral to the United States, and so if they came and they said, "Hey, I want muskets. I'm willing to pay for them. They'll give you a good deal on that, and they will give you muskets and clothes and things like that." And they had a so they had a kind of a pro-American neutrality going on, and all Spanish efforts in the the War of American Independence, to begin with, were about the Gulf Coast and Gibraltar. Off topic, totally off topic. Uh, I was in Pennsylvania literally a few weeks ago, and I actually went to the Museum of the American Independence. Actually, do you know what? That's probably one of the best museums I've ever been into. And Looks amazing. I, I think you have to go. It. The director, I got a chance to meet the director, and he was so nice and we actually got to talk about his exhibit and why they did certain things and they purposefully did a couple of things just to piss people off and i was like well yeah you kind of nice <laughs> things like women's and i mean this obviously this is something else but talking about women's independence and things like that and the graphics and the so for example what i'm trying to say is it's available for everybody you know you've got your visual listeners you've got your um listeners your visual learners your uh listening none you know everybody by touch by whatever and it works for everybody and so i'm actually really excited to talk a little bit more about this because they don't really talk much about pensacola mm -hmm. in this so i'm going to learn a little bit more of what i already learned this summer so you're kind of putting the pieces together for me a little bit here so very very excited but for those who don't know where pensacola is okay for our british audience our americans probably already do but it's like Florida area. Yes, it is, definitely. It's, uh, okay, geography hat on. Um, <laughs> you, you have you have New Orleans, and then to the west, you have Mobile, and then you have Pensacola, essentially. And all the way on the other side of Florida, you have St. Augustine. So it's... It's actually mid. It's actually kind of midway between the state capital, Florida, Tallahassee, and uh, New Orleans. Just say Tallahassee uh, one more time. Tallahassee. I just like saying Tallahassee. I think yeah. it's a fun word to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Florida has an awful lot of really cool Muscogee and Seminole uh, names in it. Uh, in, in it, and it, they're a lot of fun. Okay, enough of me babbling on about things that don't relate to what we're talking about. Well, the geography did. Tell us who was Bernardo de Galvez and why was his campaign uh, that led to Pensacola so successful? Bernardo de Galvez is 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 my history buddy since about 2020 now. Um, he is one of my new favorite characters in history, and at the same time, someone I I struggle to properly. Um, generalize about because he he's just i've said i said this on a, quite a few podcasts it, it sounds like someone made him up he's like a character out of the last of the mohicans and that's kind of why his campaign is so successful because he just was one of the best field commanders in the american 
uh, I'm using the word American Revolution, but to the Spanish, it was something slightly different. But he 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 did things with very little means and under quite dramatic time constraints and facing relatively dodgy odds that shouldn't really have worked. But because he had this kind of unbeatable will to just make some make things work even if they were broken he captured all of what was then british west florida by 1780 bearing in mind the spanish had entered the war in 1779 and there was one there was one officer in the pensacola garrison he said this is basically this this is this is a damned country that a a commanding officer the british one can lose most of his troops and half of his colony without even realizing it. Um, and that was large, largely to do with that, where they were, the geography was very remote in those days. And also because Bernardo de Galvez just didn't let up. He got the initiative and he kept it. So he's obviously quite an, a key character in this. Um, let's actually get forward into like the siege itself, you know, because obviously that is what your your book is about. Was it straightforward for the Spanish this siege, or were there some difficulties? There were uh, there were a lot of difficulties. Uh, this is the longest siege on North American soil during the war, and the longest siege on American soil until the American Civil War. And people can debate about whether this is the longest siege on North American soil, depending how you qualify what a siege is. But that's a whole different podcast. And you need American Civil War people to help argue about that. The problems that the Spanish faced were that the army and the navy didn't get along. And the government in Cuba, who were technically in charge of the war effort in that part of North America, didn't get along with the government of Louisiana, a.k.a. Bernardo de Galvez. And then you have the fact they actually have to land troops at Pensacola, besiege it and take it, and you have a recipe for a great many problems. To begin with, uh, Galvez couldn't force the Navy to enter the harbor, and he had to pull a very dramatic stunt, which I mentioned in the other podcast, uh, to get them to do to get them to do what he wanted them to do. Then he had to find an encampment while being harassed by Native Americans and British uh, irregular troops. And then he had to dig trenches and get them in place, again, still under fire. And then he had to actually bombard the place. And this took a very long time because despite his audacious nature, he was a planner. Galvez was a planner. And he, and he didn't like just wasting troops until he knew what the plan was. And it took him a while to formulate what his plan was going to be. Okay, right. This is something that is, it, I find this really important because we very, we don't talk about this very, again, another aspect of history. This is me saying this a third time in a row today on various different podcasts. It's a part of history that we just don't talk about the Native uh, Americans at all. Or if we do, they're just like a footnote or a line here or a line there. What do the Native Americans do? How much are they involved in this battle? Excellent question. You're very, uh, it's, it's, you're so right as well about this. Native Americans play an enormous role in the entire American Revolution. 
and even down in the south, where which is kind of a forgotten theatre or a neglected theatre, uh, if you're not talking about the Carolinas in Virginia. And they play an enormous role the further south you get, because simply because the populations of white settlers are lower down in the south. And speaking of the geography of the place, going back to that, a lot of the things that the British and the Spanish and pr pr previously the French and, of course, the United States did uh, was kind of al always carried out in light of the fact that they didn't control all of the land around them. The, the, between the Mississippi and what is the modern day line of, I guess, Georgia, and as far south, as far north as the northern border of Tennessee, you have three, uh, about four or five major nations, and they control all of that land, and they have the manpower to do it. And so anybody who is going to go to war in this part of the world needs to be aware of the mass pool of manpower that can be possibly uh, added to your side. And the fact that you don't want to tick them off and shove them into a neutral corner either. Um, for their part, the the Muscogee, otherwise known as the Creeks, the Cherokees, who were a little bit too far north to be involved directly in the siege of Pensacola, the Choctaws and the Chickasaws, and farther south you have the Seminoles, the beginning of the Seminole Nation. Uh, they view this much like a lot of other Native Americans. They don't know what the best thing to do is exactly. They'd like to stay out of it, but they know they can't because they're too tied in with the British at the second. And so they feel like they'll just be good allies and they will help out any way they can. But as the war goes on, politics get in the way. Some of them split off to the Spanish and then some of them get dissatisfied with that and go back to the British. But a major part of the siege of Pensacola and the major part of the British strategy at Pensacola from 1781 to 1780, uh, 1780 to 1781 is the ability of Britain's Indian department to gather thousands of warriors to come and camp at Pensacola. And this is a big problem for Galvez because he's not a big fan of irregular warfare and being tied down chasing war parties through the woods and the trackless swamps of, of Florida and the Gulf Coast. He actually tries to get Campbell to do a deal where they both promise not to use allied war bands. Uh, you know, he, he says a lot of stuff about the censure of humanity will be upon us if we do this. And I mean, he, he wasn't a hypocrite. He, he actively tried to not to use any Native Americans who are on his side for war purposes. But Cam Campbell said he'd be an outright idiot if he didn't use every means at his disposal. <laughs> so you get something like 2,000 warriors through 1780 camped at Pensacola. They're all there for... They're, they're there because their chiefs and leaders have, have brought them there, but they're also there, a lot of young men are there to prove themselves as warriors, and men take scalps to prove this, because this is a rite of passage. And this, is, this whole strategy becomes undone when the Spanish don't show up for half a year, and most of them will go home except for about 
six to four hundred Choctaws under a very redoubtable war chief called, um, and I have to just check how his, his name is pronounced here, but it's uh, Franchi Mustabe, which basically means French killer, um, but can be shortened even further to just killer. And he is the unknown, he's the unseen commander at Pensacola. He's the unseen third commander at Pensacola in 1781. And I was so excited to find out about him because actually I didn't even think that I was going to be able to name a, a Native American participant in this book. It's that bad usually with with the, the records of their participation. But they played a, played a, a very vital role in the siege. And so, obviously, if you if you look at a, a map of where Pensacola is, which I, I did have to do for uh for this podcast, you you can see that where it it sits. Yes, it's obviously is on land, but it's also surrounded by it's encompassed by uh by water as well by the sea by uh, by the the it is the Gulf of Mexico, isn't it? I can't. I'm not making my my. No, no, you're right. Yeah. Yes, I thought so. I had that awful moment of then. It's like I'm saying this, and is this right? <laughs> or I, my brain was playing tricks on me. So obviously, we can't avoid the fact that there must be um, an effect of naval power on on this fighting. And I'm sure, particularly Alina, would love to hear about some stop more it. boats today. <laughs> no, stop it! Stop it! <laughs> but yeah, so how how did the navy any any naval power impact the fighting? It's it's a, it is a very important question, and the it's it's a fascinating element of the siege and the campaign across the Gulf Coast is the importance of naval supremacy for any army trying to retake take or retake West Florida. The problem that Pensacola has is largely one of supply; it can only be supplied by land from St. Augustine, which is on the other side of Florida, on the Atlantic coast of Florida. And its principal means of supply was actually Jamaica from convoys coming in from uh, Governor Darling, who didn't care squat about the Gulf Coast because he was off trying to invade Honduras and using a lot of man material and ships, including Nelson and um, Collingwood uh, ships to, to go and invade Go and invade Honduras, uh, which coincidentally, the governor there, uh, the Spanish governor there, was um, Bernardo de Galvez's father, uh, Matias Galvez. And that's another podcast all on its own, to be honest. It's very fascinating, but we don't have time to go into it. But the point is, the squadron under Sir Peter Parker at Jamaica was technically the one that was supposed to be defending and facilitating Pensacola and the Gulf Coast ports. From the Spanish side, you have the you have an endless amount for practically of ships that you can use for whether they're uh, the squadrons at Veracruz or at, at Havana, the big the main one at Havana. And they but they wouldn't have been able to make a great effect on Galvez's campaigns if there had been a larger British naval presence there because although it's annoying to constantly beat this drum, the British did have a, a significant tactical advantage at sea, especially over the Spanish. And so it was fortunate for the Spanish that the British didn't really seem to prioritize protecting 
Pensacola with ships. There was only two ships in there in 1781, two warships. One was the Hound, and the other was uh, the no three. There was the Port Royal, and there was also another one which I've forgotten its name, but it was it was it was a it was an ordnance ship, and so it was sort of loaded with guns, but it wasn't actually rated. And so the the problem is obvious there. You have two. You have you have a bunch of deep water ports uh, that aren't defended properly from the sea, and a navy which, to begin with, is busy elsewhere, and then is battered by one of the worst hurricane seasons on record in 1780, so that they can't practically launch their ships, and. General Campbell at Pensacola is constantly asking for naval support, not really realizing that none can come and help him. And so the, the ball is completely in the court of the Spaniards. And as I said before, interestingly, one of the problems that the Spanish encounter is that the Navy and the Army don't get along very well. And it's only really when the naval commander is changed to a gentleman by the name of um, Jose de Solano, and a large reinforcement comes in to Galvez's army besieging Pensacola, that the tide truly starts to swing in the favor of the Spaniards. So it's, it's highly important, um, uh, the Navy aspect of the siege. Boats. Boats. Thank God they're over. Thank you. Uh, because I want to move on away from the boats, as far away from the boats as I possibly can, Tell us a little bit more, how did the rest of the siege unfold? So it goes in sort of stages. You have the initial landing and the problem with the Navy. All very dramatic. It means a lot to Galvez. But, hold, on, um, hold on, when is it not dramatic? Uh, there's, there's a kind of a, it's the next part that isn't massively dramatic because it's a, a lot of digging and marching and skirmishing, which is kind of dispiriting to a lot of people. Uh, there's not a lot of op there's not a lot of uh, <laughs> there's not a lot of um, opportunity for glory. We'll we'll put it that way. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but that is the set the bit that comes next. You got a, a lot of hard graft coming up, where the Spanish are trying to find a place to make it a camp, a safe camp from which they can launch their the proper siege works from. Um, an interesting facet of the siege and Galvez's way of fighting is that as soon as he lands somewhere, he tends to send letters to the guys he's fighting. So he sends letters to the British and he does a deal with them. He he sets out the ground rules. He says, I'm it's 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 regrettable you're using the 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 Native Americans. Um but how about we despite that, I'm not. Um despite that, why don't you uh, why don't we agree that we're not going to fight in or over the town, so the people can stay there. That will be protected. Civilian property will be protected. I'm not going to use it unless you use it. Don't force me to burn the town down, basically. And they agree on that. And so the actual fighting occurs not over the Pensacola itself, but the fortifications of Pensacola, which sit on a very low hill above the town. A target that which in the possession of any one of the armies controls the town because you can bombard, bombard it from the heights, which is a very fascinating way of sort of dealing with the rules of war. 
is just send letters as soon as the fighting begins and say, what are the ground rules for this? And we, we move forward. And indeed they did. Galvez had a lot of problems trying to identify the best place he could both get supplied by the Navy and get good access to the forts on what was called, the British called Gage Hill. And this took most of April to sort out because they were also coming under attack from Francia Mistabe's warbands and British loyalists. Uh, he lucked out a little because Campbell wasn't the most aggressive general, but, and so he could have been pressed a lot harder earlier on. But the fact he wasn't and the fact he kept getting reinforcements allowed him to eventually select his spot. And then you get the third phase of the siege, which is the establishment of the Spanish siege lines proper, the installment of the heavy guns and mortars. And now the British, uh, as it gets into the end of April, beginning of May, are starting to get considerably worried about the fact that the Spanish artillery fire is getting much better. And they're worried about the state of the earthworks, they're trying to build more, Spanish are trying to, you have this kind of weird um, one-upsmanship game where they build a trench and the Spanish build a trench and you know, it starts to extend uh, across the map a little. Um, but that is the third and final stage. There's lots more digging, but a lot more art regular artillery bombardments, and then BAM, and I do not use that word lightly, this siege ends. It ends with a bang. And that's because a Spanish shell skips off one of the, in quotes, bomb-proof roofs of, of the forward redoubt, lands in the open door of the powder magazine, and blows it sky high. The Spanish attack it, take it, and from that position, Campbell deems that he cannot defend his forts anymore, and surrenders. Well... It did, did literally end with a bang that one, didn't it? Um, so, obviously, you've just given us like a sort of overview of the siege itself and 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 what what was happening at the time. Can we sort of talk a bit, a little bit about some of the people involved and how how they wrote about the experiences? So, for example, we'll start at the top: uh, Galvez and Campbell. How are they writing about what they've experienced? Good idea. Um, the there's there's a lot of correspondence going. Uh, uh, it's yeah. It, anybody writing about this is actually quite lucky. There's actually quite a lot of correspondence in diaries and journals and letters, from especially the two commanders and some of their officers. With Galvez and Campbell, you have on the one hand, Galvez uh, keeps what he calls a diary of operations, and he entrusts this to one of his officers, Colonel Esteban Miro. And that is a daily tally of what goes on during the siege so that he can write it up in a, in, a, in a sort of more flowery way later, send it to his uncle, who is the uh, Minister of the Indies in Spain. Galvez is incredibly well connected, by the way. I should have mentioned that before. but um, And that gets published in the Gazeta de Madrid. And he's done this for the last two main operations, the one on the Mississippi and the one against Mobile. And so he does it again, and this gives a really interesting insight, not only into the day-to-day workings of the siege, but into how he dresses it up for his uncle. Because we not only have Miro's, um, Miro's daily tally, but we have 
Galvez's final product as well, which was published in the Gazeta. So that's interesting. And he does he does pad out a few things here and there for public consumption. Either that or his uncle does. I'm not quite sure which one is responsible for the final effort. But um, he writes about this so that, quite naturally, people know what he's done, his achievements, and he can back up any problems he has in writing. And it's corroborated by, by one of his offices, etc. And then with Campbell... You have you don't have a diary, although a lot of officers kept a diary, and I, I mean, he might have kept one. We just haven't found it. Um, you have the headquarters corresp correspondence, which he was writing to Clinton, General Clinton in New York, or uh, General Carlton in uh, Canada, or indeed, or indeed back to Whitehall. So. They are, again, very detailed reports quite often, um, going on for pages, because he's not as good a writer as Galvez. Campbell wasn't as good a writer as Galvez. He he tended to stuff his reports with a lot of um, needless, flowery, not even flowery, sort of archaic language. He was quite, he was quite a bit older. And... Um, some of the things he asks for are not realistic, or some of the things are quite plainly trying to basically cover the fact he doesn't think he's going to be able to hold Pensacola for any meaningful amount of time. And so kind of heading off the idea that, just heading 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 off the bad press of the past by saying, by, by laying the foundations well, that he was up against everything uh, as commander of this garrison. They're very interesting reports, uh, and indeed, there's more than just the official reports. There's also his correspondence with the Indian Department and with the civil authorities, uh, Governor Peter Chester, and indeed, some of the correspondence with Galvez. Um, after the siege ended, they had a right old war of words to do with uh, how the prisoners were going to be transported back to British territories, who was breaking what rule of the capitulation because something happened that they didn't foresee, um, and a lot of a lot of uh, shenanigans in print have been recorded through and held at the National Archives in Kew, which I was lucky enough to go and see. It's it's really fascinating stuff to see the two generals see how the two generals dealt with things. Well, it wasn't just them; there were others as well. You've got Captain Deans and Superintendent Cameron. How how did they deal with it? So, Superintendent Cameron, uh, you have several of his letters back to the Foreign Office. He was the superintendent of the uh, Southern Department of the Indian British Indian Department. He took over from a very successful superintendent uh, by the name of, I think, it's John Stewart, uh, one of the first Indian. Uh, department superintendents in the South, and he criticizes Campbell very heavily in his letters. We don't have a journal for him, but we do have his, some of his letters that he wrote back, to, sort of trying to tell people that if we're going to use the Native Americans as allies, we need to actually treat them as allies and not as just um, paid mercenary auxiliaries. Uh, they're here because they technically want to be, they have incentive to be here, not because of any particular love for us. Um, and Campbell just didn't understand this, and he criticizes 
Cameron criticizes Campbell quite heavily for not understanding how to best use their allied contingent. And that is and there's also great insights in his letters to Whitehall and his um uh, bosses at the Indian Department uh into the makeup of the Allied warriors who came. You it's from him that you hear about uh Francia Mistabe. And it's from him that you get the speech that Francia Mustabe makes, um, ticking off the British for not supporting him properly. Then you have Captain Deans of the HMS Mentor. And he is one, the commander of uh, one of the few um, Navy ships that are beetling up and down the coast prior to the siege. The Mentor ends up getting um, scuttled to prevent it being captured by the Spanish. And he takes his guns and his men into the redoubts and they act as artillerymen for the rest of the siege. Artillerymen, carpenters, and, and many other things because the seamen are very handy. Um, he, he, he has a logbook and logbooks are just gold because you get all sorts of information that you don't get in normal journals. His his stuff is very sparse, and you also have the slight problem that Navy days start at twelve p.m. Um, so there's a there's a kind of a mathematical overlap where some of the stuff he writes seems to occur on a different day, but it really doesn't, which is confusing. But nevertheless, despite its sort of Spartan nature of X Y Z happened at this time at this time, it's really good because it also gives you like the weather and the wind direction, and um, just bare bones, this happened on this day without really giving any sort of bias. Um, so that's how they both do it. And of course, the logbook is is being written essentially again, so that after the, the um, operation is over, he, he will be able to face a court of inquiry, basically, and explain what happened. So it's some quite interesting little tidbits there from some of the accounts you found. And we, we can't get away from the fact that a lot of those voices are European voices, European male voices, um, just by deference of what was happening at the time. But are there sort of any accounts that were left by maybe any women that were present at the siege or in the area or any of the Native Americans? Yes, actually, but with, with conditions. So as I said before, I was I was not expecting to be able to find good Native American voices. And indeed, there's no Native American who leaves his own testimony of fighting at Pensacola. You have to get their voices from people like Superintendent Cameron and the Spanish King's Commissioner in America, Francisco de Saavedra who interviews a lot of the um, Native Americans at Pensacola after the siege or during it, because some of them came over to the Spanish camp. And he talked to them and he left uh, he left some interesting um, passages in his journal uh, about meeting them and what they talked about. Uh, so there's that. And you have that wonderful speech by Francia Mustabe uh, about... Um, his part in the in the siege to superintendent cameron for the women again i honestly i was skeptical as to whether i would be able to find anybody who left any account and as usual in sort of the official documents you might now and again 
have a pass, passing reference to a woman somewhere doing something in in connection with something else. Um, you and in seventeen eighty, you get uh, the chaplain of the Third Waldeck Regiment, who is another part of the Pensacola garrison, talking about day to day life through that summer, and he talks about some sort of affairs that happen uh, in the running of his regiment and the running of the other regiments, which includes some of the women who are there. You also get official records of the regiments themselves and a, a rather startling figure of the mortality of the regiments that serve in West Florida. And there are a lot, there are a lot of casualties through disease of women and children through uh who are attached to the regiments but that's kind of so you can cobble all these things together to get a broad appreciation and i think if you dig deeper you'll be able to get more but specifically with the siege of pensacola i was you could have knocked me down with a feather but i found an insane account of a woman by the name of elizabeth woodward who uh, she was attached to the, one of the Loyalist battalions, uh, I think it was the Pennsylvania Regiment, and she lived long enough to be able to petition, um, I think it might have been Castlereagh, uh, for a pension. And in this declaration that she sends when she's a very old woman, she, she lays out a, a ridiculously swashbuckling, insane life that she led as essentially a regimental woman. So uh, in North America during the American Revolution, she she was married a few times and she was she was she was on a ship once helping um, man cannons when they came under attack from a French ship. She was she apparently rescued her husband and some of his men who got captured in an operation. Uh, in, on the along the New York Pennsylvania border, and then you, she she crops up in Florida, uh, and there's just a passing reference to her, and this is an exclusive. I'm going to say here, I was keeping Elizabeth, I was keeping Elizabeth for the people who were reading, who were going to buy the book, but for history act, because I love you all, I can, <laughs> yeah. I can, I can, I can, I'm giving you the exclusive that. Mrs. Woodward is the is the woman at Pensacola. Uh, well, there you go, listeners. History hack exclusive there from Josh. We can't don't get many of those. <laughs> I like an exclusive once in a while, though. It kind of makes yeah. me feel special. She's a she's amazing, um, and and she, you should feel special that she she's the she gets mentioned here first. It's she's 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 utterly mind-boggling if any of this is true and the weird thing is a lot of it actually checks out um she lived a, a life that should be memorialized in some sort of novel or movie i mean that um because it, it i don't understand how people have not it's it's really good stuff and she's she's in the battery at pensacola uh, ripping up her skirts to serve as wadding for the cannons during the final attack um, because she knows how to fire cannons because she was on a ship once that came under attack and she helped fire the cannons. She's badass. Uh, yes, she is, absolutely. 
um, and she she just wouldn't die. She she became almost like the like the regimental mother to her, another battalion in the in, a, in the war of eighteen twelve, and they called her they called her Mammy what Mammy um, Hopkins because her, her name had changed again by that point. But uh, you have to you have to read the book and you have to read about her. Um, it's 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 a really it's one of those really cool stories that you find not that you don't expect to find. So important question just to round all of this off, really, is how important was this battle, even though we have at least one badass woman? Um, how important is the battle and how is it really remembered now? The importance of the battle is it, it kind of depends what side you're on. To the Spanish, it's very important because they don't have a lot to hang their hat on in terms of military successes between the Seven Years' War and well, frankly, the Napoleonic Wars. So the fact that the only thing they failed to do in the American Revolution was to capture Gibraltar, and yet Gibraltar is the only thing people remember about their participation, is very weird. So it's very important for Spanish military history, and and indeed into the 18th century, uh, it, it was very important for them to be seen as a world power that could go to war successfully again. And it was uh, very important for the United States because although the Spanish were neutral, they their participation frankly ensured that there would be some kind of settlement made that secured some manner of independence. It's also important because and I've said this on a couple of other podcasts. There, so there's there's this kind of idea. There's been an idea for a while that without the Spanish, the friend there is no Yorktown. This is a weird statement, given what people understand about the Spanish and the American Revolution. But you have to. But the reason why the case can actually be made and defended is because after the siege of Pensacola the Spanish and the French got together and they decided, okay, what joint um, what joint operations can we get going? And they talked about a few things, but it turned out that the French didn't have any money to get their ships to sea with. So the Spanish commissioner, who I mentioned earlier, Francisco de Saavedra, said that, well, if you stop by Havana on your way to Virginia, where Washington is waiting for you, then you can uh, take some of our money and we'll send ships over to Saint-Domingue and they'll protect it for you while you're away because we can't actually go ourselves and help the Americans because that would that would make it look as if we're actively aiding rather than being neutral. So the, the, the inhabitants and the government of Havana do a whip around and they come up with a million pesos um, or is it 500,000? 500,000 to a million pesos. And they give that to Admiral de Grasse. And he he goes on his merry way to Yorktown. And then, about a month afterwards or so, about 2 million pesos come in from Mexico. Because in their, in their foresight, the Spanish government had done yet another whip around uh, a, a a voluntary fund had been got up uh, that everybody who so wished could chip in a small amount of money 
to help with the war effort. This was in like 1779, 1780 or something like that. And 2 million pesos was got up for this and it ended up coming into Havana in late 1781. And at least a million of that was sent to Rochambeau at Yorktown to help pay his troops because the French had a lot of money problems at this time, which you know con contributed significantly to their own revolution. Um, so it's actually very important that the Spanish had no active operation through the end of 1781 so that their ships and their gold could be completely free to just be sent to the, to the French. So it's an indirect importance, but it is quite important in the overall, if you, if you, if you sort of, if you bring it all together. Right. Well, Josh, thank you for joining us again and giving our listeners something interesting to think about and also an ex our exclusives as well, which is always really, really good to hear. But it's been fantastic to have you on again, Josh. Just let our listeners know where can they find your latest book or any of your other books as well, should they take your, their fancy. Uh, my books can be found on the publisher's website, that's Helion and Company, and, of course, on Amazon as well. I presume you can order them through your local bookstore as well, if you so wish. I think they're also available now in the United States. Their stocks are um, going out slowly. They keep running out of stock on Amazon. Uh, that's just a bit. That's, that's a small flex. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, but, we can also get them onto the uh, History Hat bookshop as well for any listeners who would like to go through it that way to make sure that Josh gets his cut and also a little one for the History Hack as well to keep moving forward and keep having excellent guests, guests like Josh on as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Go there and probably you can just go straight there in the link below. Just yeah. Carry on. And yeah, that if you find me... There you'll find me everywhere, I guess. Those are the books that are out at the second. I'm going to keep writing as long as people, you know, let me. Uh, there's more, there's going to be hopefully more from the Spanish and the American Revolution in the future as well, because I like the subject and I, Bernardo and me have some more work to do. Yeah, you've still got some things you need to iron out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but no, thank you very much, Josh. No, it's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work, or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.